oral tradition of passing down stories is so important because it's the flesh witnessing that adds to the the validation of what happens. Flesh witnessing changes history. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the podcast where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences of those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. Kate Carter is a major in the Australian Army. She has served as the Senior Intelligence Officer on operations in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea and in East Timor. She is also the editor of the Australian Army Journal. Currently, she is a course designer at the Centre for Defence Leadership and Ethics. She holds a PhD in Military Sociology from Deakin University in Australia. She is the co-founder of the Australian Research Group Military Organisation and Cultural Studies. Kate is also proudly the co-founder of the Australian Defence Force Curative Arts Association, which is having its first exhibition in the Adelaide Fringe Festival in March 2022 in Australia. Today, Kate is telling her story from Bougainville and East Timor, applying her unique strategic insights. Kate, tell us your story. Well, I was in Bougainville in 2001. I was part of the Peace Monitoring Group and it was, you know, early days for really any Australian Defence Force deployment in that era. If you like, we'd come out of a period uh, of of peacekeeping uh, during the 80s and 90s Um, and there were a number of, you know, small wars, civil wars, um, civil conflicts happening around the world that uh, there was there was starting to be a, a bit of modern international intervention in. And Australia's focus was very much on the South Pacific. And because of Australia's uh, relationship with, with Papua New Guinea, and I, I must say that, you know, with, with some of the, particularly in, in, uh, in Bougainville and Papua New Guinea, Australia... You played a lot of different roles and a lot, a lot of different sides, let's say. So admittedly, we were part of the problem and then we were part of the solution. And this is prob- probably a theme that, um, that uh, many stakeholders in the South Pacific would, would you know, probably uh, see Australia's role in. So the Peace Monitoring Group was deployed to Bougainville uh, after the Civil War of 89 to, uh, to 99. Uh, that was really a secessionist movement. And um, the, uh, certainly there was a peace agreement that was signed uh, in Cairns and uh, after that there was a really interesting military and civilian coalition. It was a regional coalition made up of four countries, Australia, New Zealand, Vanuatu and Fiji. And this was called the Peace Monitoring Group. And it, and it stood out as a, as a real experimental international intervention uh, in that it was a, a regional coalition, um, not sort of Western great powers, perhaps not even, if you like, colonial powers. Um, and it was an unarmed force and it didn't wear uniforms. And so, you know, it, 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 it was a risk, I guess, and it was a really interesting experiment on how to monitor a, a peace process, if you like, you know, with military forces, but looking non-military, uh, looking benign, uh, really interesting. And its success, you know, is, is documented from a number of different stakeholders level. And I think, I think there are some really interesting papers about, you know, how that, how that worked. But the peace monitoring group was part of this, and I went over as an officer in that group. And the event that I carry with me over the last 20 years is the signing of the peace agreement in Arawa, capital of Bougainville, on the 30th of August 2001. Now, this peace agreement was was a very symbolic uh, gesture, if you like, 
and it, it, it had three pillars to it. It was about the promise to hold a referendum for independence and that was a, a, a realistic 20-year kind of uh, deadline that they put on that. They, you know, that it wasn't going to be anytime soon, uh, but there was a promise to hold a referendum. It was weapons disposal, which the um, uh, peace monitoring group was involved in, and it was autonomy, which was really an interim period for Bougainville to set up its own governance and self-determination to prove that it could be self-governing uh, in, a, in a, a journey to independence, which hasn't been achieved yet. 20 years later, they're a lot closer, but this is a long, long pathway. And in 2001, we knew that this was going to be like this. So there was this marvellous event. And the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that there was a huge preparation for it. So this was going to involve international dignitaries who were going to come in from the, you know, regional countries and there was a small UN presence there as well. So there was going to be representatives from further afield and it was in Arawa and there was a program and I still have the program and it, it documents the days leading up to the actual signing as part of the process. So these days were called travel days and greeting and um, ceremony days for people, particularly around Bougainville, to travel, and many of them by foot. So it took days for people to to you know come and and gather in Arawa. <clears throat> there were also international dignitaries flying in, and um, so there was a lot of logistics and movements that had to be planned. And there was hosting, a really important part. Of, uh, of the Bougainvillians showing that, th that this was an important day was their hospitality. So they played host to lots of guests. And uh, hospitality, you know, involved um, a, a lot of ceremony and a lot of logistics and a lot of movements, and it was a very important part of this agreement. It wasn't just everyone turning up on the day, you know, a few speeches, sign the document and everyone go home. Now, the Peace Monitoring Group uh, helped facilitate this, in, this event. And so we you know, provided uh, transport and, um, you know, we helped with um, uh, setting up some structures uh, and some infrastructure for, for sort of temporary accommodation and feeding of people and ablutions and, and that kind of thing. What was your role in the Peace Monitoring Group, Kate? I was the head of intelligence. And my role really was to, to communicate with, uh, you, know, you know, to work out what each group was doing in, in this particular process. Now, uh, there was a very important uh, body called the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, which was, which, you know, really were the, the fighting force. And, and, you know, there was lots of bloodshed uh, in the Civil War between Bougainvillians and, and Papua New Guineans. Um, for self-determination and the Bougainville Revolutionary Army and the Bougainville Interim Government were two really important bodies that, that kind of grew and developed people who were to become the leaders of Bougainville 20 years later and, and they, they are now. Um, and so I really needed to find out, um, you know, who all these groups were, what part they played uh, you know, it was a very diplomatic kind of role. Um, every one of us, rather than a normal kind of military operational role, were really involved uh, as representatives of our country and as monitors and facilitators of the peace process. So there was lots of engagement. There was lots of talking. There was lots of feasting. There was lots of, you know, sitting down and understanding people's priorities and motivations. And that made it quite different from, let's say, a normal military kind of role or policing role even. So we were involved helping uh, prepare for this wonderful um, signing uh, agreement. And the, the day before, we actually had a rehearsal, a full rehearsal uh, of all the movements that would need to happen and the entire ceremony and, you know, worked out whether we had enough vehicles and, and, and enough people to escort different people and to get them from place to place. Um, and it, it, there was a real sense that this was the changing day. 
in Bougainville's timeline. You know that that the this was the day that was going to validate the violence and the um, the struggle that had happened on the road to uh, self determination, but on the road to peace as well. And and I remember that that we had this wonderful rehearsal and and it, and it went off uh, really well. And uh, you know we we were trying to mitigate for any kind of um, uh, you know, glitch in the system that would happen the next day because there were literally people flying in from overseas and, uh, you know, the, the, the terrain in Bougainville is really quite uh, harsh and some inhospitable. Sometimes it's hard to land boats. Sometimes it's hard to land planes. Uh, the roads can get cut at any time. Um, you know, this was August, so it was coming into uh, the wet season, but it, it, was, it, was all, uh, it was all high risk as far as pulling this event off. Um, and, and, you know, as I said, the consequences of this event were going to be lifelong. And I remember that night after the rehearsal, uh, we were also kind of highly wired because this was an exciting, such an exciting time and there were so many people involved uh, and we knew that it was, you know, going to change the Pacific. And that night I couldn't sleep. And so in Bougainville, when you can't sleep, what do you do? You go fishing. And so I remember taking uh, one of my staff members and a sailor called Rooster, and he had bright orange hair and a bright orange beard, and that's what I remember about Rooster. And he had the best fishing gear I've ever seen. He had he had fluoro line and every single bit of tackle. And this is what sailors spent their money on in those days: high tech fishing gear, right? And so we went out on a banana boat with a local. And we went far out to sea and he and this local guy was saying, oh, I know where the fishing spots are. And we went far out to sea and we kind of, you know, it was a full moon. It was this incredible magic sort of night. And we dropped our lines in and uh, and we could see the lights still back at Lollahoe, which was the wharf where we all lived. And then the fish didn't bite for a while and we talked about the day and talked about what the next day was going to be. And then the, And then the local guy said, oh, the fish aren't biting, he will go out further. So we went out further and we went miles and miles out in the sea. Uh, and, um, and, 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 you know, I thought I could be anywhere in the world and, gee, I hope I can get back by tomorrow morning because this is a really important day. And it was just this wonderful sort of camaraderie of these four people in a boat that was probably not very seaworthy, <laughs> but I remember it was a calm night and it was a full moon and I think we could all swim. So we probably assessed the risk and thought it was okay. Um, and we just, the four of us who really had different roles in this, in this incredible time in this country, different priorities, different investments, and we all just talked about what it meant out in that boat. And that was the point of that trip. It wasn't whether we caught any fish it was that we were witnessing what was happening. And, you know, I'm reminded of, of um, the, the, the concept that Harari would call flesh witnessing. And this is the difference between the eyewitness and the experience. And I think when, and I'm reminded of, you know, uh, the storytelling that's happening with a lot of veterans groups at the moment. And it's really, really important, and this is why veterans you know, and you look back thousands of years of veterans groups, this is why, you know, the oral tradition of passing down stories is so important because it's the flesh witnessing that adds to the, the validation of what happens. Flesh witnessing changes history. I really like that oral tradition. It's exactly what this podcast is about, capturing that history Kate, I'm really interested to know what was the feeling like on the ground at the time. There was there was a feeling that it wasn't going to change from um, civil war to modern independent nation. There was the importance of this gap, and this gap was the peace process. and And as long as the peace was, and I don't I don't want to say secured because I think that's a kind of a you know a, a slightly naive Western uh, way of, of of talking about. Uh, peace process is a linear kind of, you know, movement from war to to development and then to thriving country. But there was there was an idea that you could go back and you know back and forward in this. But there had to be um, 
a, a space, a sort of empty vessel so that the peace could grow. And there was no, there was no fooling anyone that the, the nation would be built before the peace was developed. So, um, you know, and I think, I think Western governments sometimes with their rush to do everything um, find it hard to just let that empty vessel kind of happen there. Um, and, uh, and we knew that this was, this was part of it. And certainly on that night in that boat under the stars and the full moon, you know, there was, there was a great sense of peace and there was a great acknowledgement uh, even just by the four of us, that what we were doing was going to be possible. Kate, I think the context here is really important. We're talking a civil war that killed between fifteen and 20,000 people. Clearly you were elated, and rightly so, on the boat, ready for the peace process. What was it like the next day? You know, it was all go. There were helicopters flying in. Um, <laughs> by that point, there was a lot of different people contracted to fly helicopters. So it, it was, there were some close mo- mo- moments when overladen helicopters full of people that perhaps they shouldn't have been carrying, maybe five people too many, were trying to land on, you know, um, ovals and at the last minute other people hitch rides and, you know, people suddenly couldn't come or people suddenly were bringing five extra VIPs. So, you know, we'd, we'd arranged for that. We knew this kind of thing would happen. Um, and there were locals bringing food. There was going to be a great feast after this signing ceremony. And there was food that had been cooked, uh, you know, over the last couple of days and brought in and laid out on this massive table uh, in the markets in Arua. Um, and there was going to be, you know, there was, this was going to be a big day. And um, our, on the program, it said that it started at 10. It certainly didn't start at 10 a.m. It probably started more at 12 at midday. And um, I remember meeting one Australian senator who flew in on behalf of the minister. The, um, the foreign minister at the time was Alexander Downer, and he couldn't come at the last minute, and so he said he said, uh, sent a senator on his behalf. And I remember meeting this guy who got off the plane, and he was in, and this was, um, you know, nearly September in, in the Pacific, and this guy was in a three-piece grey woolen suit <laughs> and he got off the plane and I remember the, the heat hit him and he nearly fell over. Um, and uh, he was very um, dignified and I remember bundling him into a car and then the car stopped and then we had to walk a little bit and I sort of escorted this guy in and 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 he was, you know, he looked completely discombobulated, suddenly landed from Canberra into the Pacific and there was great singing. Can you describe a bit more of that atmosphere? There were lots of lots of lots of cultural groups that had come in from all over the island and they were you could hear them. So you could hear the singing when you woke up that day. And these groups were were holding different ceremonies, but they were singing as they walked and they came in and they were performing and there were lots of school groups that were dancing. Um and there was um uh you know th- this gathering and the ceremony was not going to start until everyone was there. And so that's why it started at about lunchtime. And there were no less than 15 official speakers. <laughs> and I looked at the list in the last couple of days and it was marvellous because it was representatives of, you know, there were a few internationals, but the, the role of the internationals was, was really to witness this. And the main speakers were the people who were involved in this process, the people who had been involved in the conflict and who were now going to be involved in the peacemaking and who we knew were going to be involved in the road to independence and the new government. Um, and there were women and there were men and there were teachers and there were um, members of, of local groups. And um, there was, of course, you know, General Ishmael Tarama, who was the head of the BRA and he and I, I remember, we were exactly the same age. We were, BRA. Okay, the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, uh, which, which you know, really were the freedom fighters for Bougainville. Ishmael Tarama and I were the same age. We were 31 while we were there. And I remember, you know, we had a couple of conversations and, and he, was, uh, he was this really charismatic figure, um, in, incredibly... Um, uh, respectful and 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 proud of of the people that he was in command of, 
He was also a music man. He had a recording studio and, you know, there was a, there was a lot of music around Bougainville. There was a lot of music making and there were a lot of really exciting young musicians and singers and songwriters that were, that were coming up and being encouraged. And I remember he used to, you know, when we couldn't find him some days for meetings, he'd be off in his recording studio <laughs> laying down a track, making a CD. Um, and it was really important to kind of, you know, meet him, uh, you know, on his own ground and, and talk about his own interests and things like that. And, of course, 20 years later, he is now the president of the Autonomous Region. You described that you were there as an intelligence officer, but it sounds that it was more of a diplomatic mission. Well, it's an engagement um, role, isn't it? I mean, it, it really is. If you need to understand what's happening um, in order to make your country's contribution worthwhile, then, you know, what better way of understanding? And it's not often available in a conflict situation, but it's available in a post-conflict situation where you can gain access to the different groups and people and sit down with them in their own um, domain, if you like, and talk to them about what's happened and what their role is and what their dreams are. And, and it's important because, you know, military operations suffer from a great churn, a great turnover of people, and host populations, you know, really put up with this and, and they and they criticise it rightly because there's not a lot of continuity of, of understanding of their situation. But I think one thing that, that Australia does really well is understand that in the region, everyone's going to kind of grow up together. So, for instance, um, you know, I, I met some, uh, a couple of officers over there. Uh, one was a platoon commander of the um, PNGDF platoon that was happens to be stationed around Arua, and another one was my equivalent. So the inter officer captains, we're all we're all captains, and I met these guys uh, in Bougainville. And in later years, I was on courses with them in Australia, and you know they had uh, they had uh, um, uh, gone to Royal Military College in Canberra, and they'd done promotion courses with me, and I kept running into them on exercises. And it was was really great because there was a trust there, um, which I think, you know, an understanding, uh, a professional kind of understanding uh, of, you know, military people or people involved in government when you know what each other uh, has been through and, and, and what each other's roles are. There's that wonderful relationship. And those, we call them people-to-people -people relationships, keep going. And, um, and you know, eventually... Uh, everyone's commanders together and then eventually everyone's generals together and eventually, you know, with Pacific nations, people are heads of their government. And and it's really important to invest that, that you know, in that relationship at an early stage because these are the leaders of, of the countries, you know, in 20, 30 years' time and people are going to be relating to each other like that. So it was it was a really worthwhile and lovely kind of time to get to know these people. And as I said, General Tarama is now President Tarama. And, um, and you know, he will get to see, he will get to realise the dream, the independence of, of his, of his uh, soon-to-be country. The importance of that peacekeeping mission I don't think can be overstated enough. It clearly has had a positive impact the country is now relatively stable from where it was. It must have given you enormous sense of pride inside seeing that ceremony. Yes, it did. Um, and we were, and it was it was interesting because I think for military um, people who who sort of you know trained in application of lethal violence um, to then be involved in peacekeeping and peace monitoring. And to use a whole lot of other skills, and we call them, you know, soft uh, political skills rather than hard skills and, and, and soft diplomacy and that kind of thing. Um, you know, th this was a, and it was quite a small force and it was incredibly isolated. Um, the, the couple of days after the uh, uh, ceremony are interesting because what happened after that, after that day, Everyone went back. Everyone was exhausted but excited for, you know, for what would happen next. Overnight almost, the RPNGC, which is the Royal PNG Constabulary, the police force from PNG, 
which had come over in, in the, in the, uh, the 90s uh, and then came over again uh, uh, in order to, uh, you know, to monitor the peace process as well. Um, there were mobile squads from the R RPNGC and there were, as I said, a couple of platoons of PNG defence force as well. And overnight, the constabulary disappeared. We didn't see them go. It was really interesting. And there was a, and, you know, you used to see them, they, they held infrastructure around the place. They had um, patrols that they would do. They, you know, they were a part of the post-conflict landscape. And after this signing of the agreement, they left. There was a really strategically important bit of terrain, key terrain. It was known as Checkpoint Charlie. And it was a kind of crossroads that led up to the Panguna Mine. And there was contingent from the from the constabulary force there. Probably worth highlighting how important mining is. Some of the world's largest copper deposits are in um, Bougainville, uh, as I understand. Yes, that's right. And of course, Bougainville Copper Limited (BCL) uh, was the reason that Australia had such a um, a uh, heavy presence of expats and and uh, you know. Um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, from the P from the administration of PNG after the war, after Second World War, um, you know, right up and right up through the seventies, and there was really quite um, a developed and sophisticated community on Bougainville before the crisis. I remember going to school um, with girls who were boarders whose parents lived in Bougainville, and they would go back there for the holidays, and it was this incredibly exotic. Um, you know, place that, uh, that it was great business. You know, that, they, that it, it all just it all just came down, and the infrastructure, of course, got completely destroyed. But this crossroad was a was an important point that um, that you could uh, secure to to facilitate movements up to the mine mine, or you could defend, or or you know, you could you could have an obstacle. And there were a number of buildings around there. There were there were structures and. And there was communications. Now, the day after this signing ceremony, the constabulary left and that and Checkpoint Charlie, if you like, got raised to the ground. And I remember driving past there on my way to the meeting in the, in the capital, uh, which we had every morning. And the place was quite literally a smouldering ruin. And there were some pallets and some boxes and everything had been um, taken away and dismantled and the rest had been burnt. And I couldn't believe this because for the, you know, for most of my military career, we'd been studying this and, and, and watching this crisis. And this was a really important, um, uh, you know, bit of terrain on the island. And I couldn't believe that there was no one there anymore. And I remember writing a report back to the headquarters in Australia, uh, the theatre headquarters, saying Checkpoint Charlie had been raised to the ground. And I remember they didn't believe me and, and some staff officers kind of wrote back, you know, a signal saying, uh, please confirm, Checkpoint Charlie no longer exists, please confirm. And I said, that's right. And they said, send photos as, as proof. <laughs> send photos as proof. And, you know, the, the, the technology, there was no technology uh, in 2001. There was no deployable internet uh, for the ADF. And so I remember taking out a little camera and, you know, taking some photos and somehow getting some grainy photo back to them that saw that this wasn't. Uh, this wasn't the case. But the world's focus then changed because 12 days later, what happened? 9-11. And the world's focus looked elsewhere. And I would suggest that it has never returned to the Pacific 20 years later. And so we felt incredibly isolated. Now, on 9-11, and we were still excited with the, the buzz of what this new, you know, peace process was going to look like and the road to independence. We were all, we were all barracking for the Bougainvillians. Um, and, you know, we had, we had a good relationship with the PNG forces as well and we, we were very aware that we played that important kind of friend of everyone role, even though, you know, we, uh, there, there's no denying it, we had been part of the problem uh, when we... Uh, certainly supported PNG um, with a number of, you know, hard power options and uh, and arms during the conflict. Uh, so we, we were treading this very, very sensitive ground. But then 9-11 happened and we didn't hear about it 
until a, a couple of days later. The communications were pretty tenuous then. We were pretty isolated on an island in the middle of the Pacific. And the first thing we heard was that this was the story. Some clown had flown a light aircraft into the Pentagon. And we thought, oh, gosh, we certainly didn't see any pictures. And I personally didn't see any images until I got back to Australia around Christmas time. Given the significance of that event, it's really hard, I think, for many people to believe you didn't hear about it instantly, as so many in the world did. What did you know about it? We heard that some clown had, had flown into the Pentagon. And then the only, um, we had, a, we had a, a sort of odd news feed. We had some sort of um, television screen up in the headquarters that had news feeds of odd regional things. And so we had some Asian finance channel and, so, and that was the only thing we could get. And so we were looking at the way that the market suddenly <laughs> fell across the world and we thought maybe there was something more to this. Uh, and then there were some, the contractors at the time, the uh, army helicopters had left, gone home, and the contractors were heavy lift um, uh, helicopters, which were a whole lot of Vietnam veterans and Russians. And they had some <laughs> communications, and occasionally they went back to Port Moresby and they could bring back news. And so they, someone, uh, there, was, there was news that one of them had some sort of, had managed to have some sort of, um, you know, communications with someone that told us that, that these other uh, events had happened around 9-11. And then we had, commu- we had phone communications home, so we were talking to our families and talking to our, um, our military workplaces back in Australia, and they were saying, the world has changed, the world has changed. And we were on this whole different trajectory. And, um, you know, that was a really interesting kind of crossroads again of the way that a, you know, that, that, that a Pacific island, a Melanesian society on the road to independence and then this other thing happens that involves, um, you know, markets and, and, and Western governments and ideas of sovereignty and, and you know, the, the way that these things can be joined but it also can just exist as two coincidences. So do you think that that's, that occurring has slowed down the progress um, of the opportunities in, in Bougainville over its independence? I don't know. Um because I haven't witnessed it uh, closely. And, you know, to do that, I think you really need, once again, to be there and to, and to see the kind of differences. I, I, I think on and off, it, it, it has and hasn't. I think, you know, Bougainville, sorry, I think um, Pacific Island politics um, has international influence. And I, I think that international influence is all to do with existing relationships and southern politics um, and, uh, um, you know, maybe um, not, not so much sort of, what can I say, the, the, the rise and fall of, of great nations uh, will, will have more to do with that perhaps rather than um, new non-state threats. Very diplomatically put. Well, I think I, I think I saw perhaps more of an influence of these in uh, of these events in Timor later on. But I think I, I think the you know the Melanesian development is is connected in a network that is far more regional perhaps than global. And I think uh, if you look like another uh, you, know, you look at another um, you know independent story of this time. Um, East Timor, I think there are a lot more influences from northern perhaps colonial powers and Western influence and, you know, the number of stakeholders in Timor was 10 times the number of stakeholders in Bougainville. And so uh, I think that this is, I think that the the things that have affected the, the peace process in Bougainville are much more local. Um, but, you know, in 2019, they had that referendum. So we've seen the next step, and it really has taken all that time. From 2001 to 2019, they had the independence referendum. They voted, uh, you know, almost unanimously for independence. And um, uh, the president, Ishmael Tarama, and the prime minister have said that that independence will be won between 2025 and 2027. So, you know, these are dates. The same people are still on that same path and they are stepping forward one step at a time, sometimes one step backwards, but it has been this slow, steady 
path towards independence. Um, I think, you know, perhaps influences to do with um, resources are are ramping up more now perhaps than they, they have in the last 20 years. And I think that's, you know, that's obviously a big factor. But, but I, can only, I can only be proud for that, for those people and for that process. And all I did is witness it. But that's a really important role. And, and, a, and a military force as, a, as an instrument of government is sometimes given that role and sometimes has to assume that role. And it's very important for the host population that we do that because otherwise, you know, who's going to validate? How is the history going to be written for the pathway of that country? You mentioned briefly Timor, and I know prior to this, we've discussed the link of a similar event, but at a different time. East Timor, same regional area. Let's just give a bit of geography on that. How far away is it from Bougainville? Um, Well, Bougainville is a province of Papua New Guinea, and Bougainville is really um, geographically and, and quite culturally part of the Solomon Islands group of islands. Um, and so there's, there's, uh, you know, I think the people of Bougainville, um, that's why they feel that they wanted independence because they were really in this um, in, in between uh, uh, independent cultural identity that wasn't necessarily uh, part of Papua New Guinea. And, and Melanesian um, uh, culture, predominantly. East Timor is a, a new independent nation as of, uh, well, 2002 became an independent country. I think there's been about four independent countries since then, but at the time that was the newest independent nation in the world um, and and was part of Indonesia, um, was, was a, a province of Indonesia up until independence, um, but has a, uh, a, a Portuguese um, colonial history, if we're just looking at, at sort of um, 19th, 20th century. Um, what happened eight years later, I found myself in Dili, in East Timor, as part of the International Stabilisation Force, which, ha- which was once again a post-conflict group, a post-conflict international deployment after the violence following the independence referendum of East Timor. So in um, 1999, there was uh, a referendum for uh, for East Timor to gain independence from Indonesia. And once again, the people voted overwhelmingly for independence, not autonomy. And so after that, there was great violence from Indonesian uh, forces, uh, which didn't want to let, uh, let East Timor go, if you like. Um, and following that violence was an international intervention that, that uh, we remember being Interfet in 1999. Now, fairly quickly, that country... Uh, secured independence in 2002 and I remember before I went there so between my time in in um no before I even went to Bougainville in 2000 the Sydney Olympics I I was at the opening ceremony and I remember seeing the four athletes from East Timor who had been allowed, so after the referendum, on the pathway to their independence, the International Olympic Committee allowed four East Timor uh, uh, athletes, a boxer, a weightlifter, and a male and female marathon runner to compete in the Sydney Olympics as independent athletes. And they came in under the flag of the Olympics, not under their own flag, and they, they couldn't compete as a country, but they were allowed to compete as independent athletes. And I remember this, and everyone should look this up and watch the footage of this because it is one of the most joyous scenes ever of these four athletes dancing down the straight in the parade of athletes at the beginning where everyone else was sort of somberly marching and waving to the crowd. 
And these four athletes dance the whole way and jump and are so excited and, they, you know, they represented hope and it was a real international symbol at the time. And so, you know, once again, um, th this was the kind of feeling at the time around, around you know, this kind of post-colonial, um, post-occupation uh, um, South Pacific, if you like. This clearly shared some similarities. There were many deaths. There was the massacre in Dili. You again found yourself in a very complex situation. Yes. And so when I deployed to East Timor in 2009, this was the 10th anniversary of that referendum. So it wasn't the anniversary of independence, but the important thing to the East Timorese was to, to commemorate the, the turning point, which was the referendum. And that also um, included, obviously, the memory of the massacres and the displacement, the end of the beginning of the struggle. So the end of the, um, you know, the, the very long uh, uh, struggle and militia fight to gain, in, to gain independence, basically. And so the 30th of August, the same day, 2009, there was, there was this great parade. There was a great ceremony at the new presidential palace. There was, uh, an, a, you know, a, an international presence. There was a huge international presence in East Timor anyway because, you know, there's nothing like a new nation uh, to excite investors. <laughs> and, 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 you know, nations and, and companies and all sorts of stakeholders will want to invest all sorts of things. Sometimes it is goodwill and mentoring and governance and um, assistance and sometimes it's aid and charity, and sometimes it's guns and small arms, and uh, sometimes it's business. And so, you know, the, the country couldn't have been any more packed with people, all with their own agenda. And the, the influence of that certainly came out in, in the way that, that East Timor has kind of managed sprint to being a developed country. It's the opposite of the way that Bougainville has taken this very slow, considered um, path through the peace to, you know, through autonomy, 10 years of autonomy towards independence, which they haven't got yet. And East Timor did it in this really quick, frenzied kind of way. And there was, and because of that, there was lots of outward symbols of this. Now, this, this big ceremony and parade on the 30th of August, you know, I found myself in this huge crowd um, in these stands by the new new presidential palace, which had been built really quickly, and it was and it was really full of, of symbols of what I would call, you know, a European Western statehood. There were uh, dignitaries. There was there was government. There was police. There was armed forces. There were medals and awards. East Timor loves to give out medals and awards. Um, there were these real hard symbols of state power. But and there were there were speeches. Um, uh, it didn't it didn't sort of go on all day. It was very much it was very much uh, for people to witness again, but to witness progress. So all this activity was just in the capital city. I remember that there was also a number of events around at the at the time that went across the whole island. One of them was the Tour de Timor, which was an international bike road race. And it was really famous because East Timor's got some really hairy roads and mountains. <laughs> and um, if you are a brave, adventure-seeking road racer, you'd, you know, you go around the real world looking for the most high-risk races you could do, and this was the most high-risk. And so all these amazing – that was another group of stakeholders, all the bike movement from around the world, all these guys came in. And, uh, you know, there was infrastructure again. We had to, you know, we helped once again. Did you have the same role, intelligence slash diplomat? Yes, I had exactly the same role. And I found, my, uh, I found once again that the most important thing that I could do was to engage personally with all the stakeholders. Now, there were a lot more groups. Was really, it took up all my days and nights to, to get around, talk to everyone and, you know, find out what, all their different agendas and priorities were. And believe me, they were all different. 
Did you find a lot of similarities between Bougainville and East Timor? Um, I think I noticed the differences in hindsight. And so where we had these kind of symbols of Western statehood that were seen in East Timor uh, with, with, you know, outward, outward signs of, of power and development, if you like, it was very important to the East Timorese to, to show infrastructure, bureaucracy, self-governance, security, that kind of thing, investment. The, the Bougainville message was much more of symbols of nationhood, if you like, not statehood. Mm. So the cultural elements, the social elements, the time invested in peace and reconciliation ceremonies and, and that the reconciliation um, had to be done before the independence was won. And I think I saw there, was a, there were reconciliation ceremonies in East Timor as well, but it was done at the same time as the plane was being built and on the runway and already taking off. Um, w- one thing that I remember was, um, you know, and there was all these um, really interesting contradictions of, of the kind of the, the imagery and the visual signs around Dili at the time. I remember that, you know, that there was still, because a lot of the infrastructure got, um, got uh, completely uh, damaged and, and destroyed during the crisis. Um, there was, you know, not a lot of uh, power, uh, fresh water, um, uh, sewerage facilities, and yet there were entrepreneurs everywhere starting businesses. And these were local entrepreneurs. This wasn't necessarily international. This was local Timorese starting their own businesses. And there was just tiny little shops and businesses uh, springing up all over the city. And in every one of these shops that might not have had a front door, there was a photocopier. And those photocopiers were working 24-7, churning out something. I don't know. But it was a sign. It was a really important sign of progress and bureaucracy and things being done. And there were official papers being done and there was proof, you know. And it, and it was just, it was, a, it was a, a, you know, a real symbol of that time of 2009 in Billy that there was the bureaucracy being built. Um, and yet, you know, uh, th- there was another sign too that, uh, you know, the hills around Dili were denuded of vegetation. Um, it, it, there, was a, there was a sort of desperation to, you know, to live and survive during the conflict. And there were people who had left the cities, obviously, there were displaced people's camps all around the place. People had fled the cities fled into the bush, there was real survival kind of happening. Um, and I remember being on board the USS Bonhomme Richard, which was a, a US amphibious ship, which, very sad to say, has now been decommissioned and scuttled and now is a dive wreck somewhere on the bottom of the ocean. But I was standing on the deck of that out at sea, looking back to Dilly at night and seeing the the kind of campfires um that were up in the hills of all the people who lived in the hills above the city. And the fires would kind of get out of hand and they'd kind of trickle down, but there was nothing left to burn. So it wasn't as if anything was in danger. And there was an American sailor sitting next to me and he was looking at these fires as well with me and he said, ma'am, is that lava? And I said, <laughs> mate, that's lava. We're all in a world of hurt. <laughs> that's just <laughs> And um, I was thinking that this, you know, that there were these once again um, – you know, real, really contradictory signs of kind of building of a new nation uh, while the remnants of the of the crisis and the struggle and the survival was still there. And you know, I remember, you know, when I left, there was still the displaced people's camps were still uh, there. They weren't completely, um, they hadn't been uh, uh, resolved and people moved back in. But there was, you know, the presidential palace and there was, um, government meetings and there were elections and there, there was definitely a big difference between what was happening in the city though and what was happening in the regions because there was all the kind of introduced international systems in the city and sometimes they were conflicting. I mean, even in the training of the police force, <clears throat> the individual training was being run by the Portuguese police and the collective training was being run by the Australian Federal Police. And so it, it's almost impossible to come out with a workable uh, 
um, what institutional kind of model if you had so many different people there. But out in the regions, it was very much still customary law and customary governance. And, and you know, the, the, the leaders, the two leaders, Horta and, and Guzmau, um, would also kind of represent that uh, tension, if you like, between an introduced progressive Western way of sovereignty and the customary way as well. They represented that personally as, as men. They represented that sort of tension. Kate, these are two very significant events in not only their countries um, but also for Australia and given the importance they are to the region, and I think you really well described that. Those must have in some way shaped who you are today. And one of the questions I'm keen to ask, and I always do have guests, is what would you tell your 18-year-old self and pass on the wisdom and experience if you could based on everything you've seen and done to date? Um, I would say have patience and have faith because I am a member of the culture that expects things to be done now and that expects to see progress by the end of the day. Now, that's just not really how anybody works, and yet that's a message that somehow I've picked up during my life. Now, it absolutely doesn't work in nation building. (laughs) I don't think it matters what culture, where in the world that you know, a group of people who define themselves by nationhood is trying to uh, strive for self-determination. And I, I, you know, I think I was very quick to dismiss um, the likelihood of success because I think that, you know, the way that we measure success um, is really quite naive. Uh, it's really quite superficial as well. And it, it's usually not in line with the people who are, are striving for some sort of, you know, outcome. It's, it's the cathedral metaphor, right? You can start building a cathedral. The people who started building cathedrals in medieval times were not going to live to see them finished, right? And their children built them as well, and maybe they didn't live to see them finished <laughs> with <laughs> what with um, – uh, life, uh, you know, lifetimes in um, short lifetimes in medieval periods. They it might have taken a few generations, and we just but those cathedrals are still there. So if we're going to build a nation, if anyone is going to build a nation themselves and ask for help, then <clears throat> you know they may not get to see it in their lifetime, but investing in that time build a robust kind of community that may still be there in a couple of hundred years' time. And there is such a tendency for the rush to make countries in our own image. And I think people realise this, but we can't help ourselves. Kate, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight to hear your story. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a story or know of a story that should be told, contact us by our webpage at the My Story section, Conflict Chronicles dot com.